from Isaiah. But now, says the Lord, the one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, don't fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When through the rivers, they won't sweep over you. When you walk through the fire, you won't be scorched, and flame won't burn you. Look, I am doing a new thing. Now it sprouts up. Don't you recognize it? I'm making a way in the desert, paths in the wilderness. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> my name is Jonah. My pronouns are they, them, theirs. And I'm one of your pastors here at Zao. Um, today is actually Palm Sunday. Does anybody know that? Does uh, people know what that means or not know what that means? I know Zao has uh, quite the diverse community here. So I'm going to bet that we have both. Now, some of you who have been at Zao who might be like, Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday, what is that? Might recognize it by the name Protest Sunday, um, because that is often how we celebrate it. We remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem as a staged event, a protest um, meant to challenge the structures of power and evil in his community. And we celebrate that, that planned event, that forethought, that organizing of the community into resistance. Now, a lot of times on Protest Sunday, we bring out our protest signs, and we sing marching on, and we get real rowdy in here. But today, we really wanted to be faithful to the journey that we've been on this season of Lent leading up to Easter, which is next week. And we have made it all the way to our final pre-Easter Lent sermon on sin. Now, when Cameron suggested, this was Cameron's idea, blame Cameron, that we spend seven whole weeks on the topic of sin, I was like, whoa, dude. <laughs> I was like, that's a lot of sin talk. That's a lot of sin talk. But turns out we had a lot to unpack. <laughs> turns out we got a lot of baggage around sin. Turns out we've been lied to about sin. And actually, there's a lot holy that's there to uncover. And so in our final sermon about this, our final teaching about this, preparing for understanding the cross, preparing for understanding what it means for Jesus to walk into Jerusalem, to march into Jerusalem with the people in contrast to empire, to approach the cross, to die on the cross and to rise. We are talking about transformative justice. Now, we've been working around, circling around justice this whole series because sin, language around sin, is about identifying what's wrong, what has gone horribly wrong. And justice is about making things right. As we've talked about before, justice is linked with righteousness, which biblically means right relationship. Right relationship. It's not about being right, yeah? Righteousness is about right relationship and setting things right between us because our relational God wants us to be connected to one another. And this is the central idea of our understanding of sin that we're really leaning into this season is creation, the cosmos as a connected being, a connected body, the body of Christ. This is another biblical image that we are the body of Christ connected all these different pieces coming together as one. And that sin is anything that tears us apart. 
anything that rends us from ourselves, from one another, and God. As we talk about sin as the name for that harm, we talk about repentance as the willingness to be held accountable for the harm we've caused, to, to look at ourselves and to say, I want to, I want to come back to the ways of love. I will cease my violence. I will cease my harm, and I will turn back towards love. And last week, we talked about forgiveness, which is the process by which we self-examine. We process our own hurt, the harm that has been caused to us, then we move through it so that we can be prepared to be woven back together in love. Now, this is all preparatory work, but what is the weaving back together in love? What does that look like? I think, again, we have to come back to our understanding of justice. Justice is setting things right. Justice is right relationship. But, but what are the frameworks of justice that are informing our concepts of sin, our concepts of hope for the future even? In our culture, we have a very strong influence of the idea of punitive justice. Punitive justice is tit for tat. Punitive justice is an eye for an eye. Punitive justice says when you do wrong, I will do wrong back to you. And punitive justice is, is at the core of our criminal legal system. It's at the core of our evil prison industrial complex. It's at the core of policing. And that is why, as an abolitionist community, we reject that punitive framework. And we say not only do we reject that in our world, we reject that in our theology. That's not how God works. That's not how biblical justice works. And really at the core of that, at, at the heart of a punitive framework, is the idea that when one causes harm, you either retaliate by causing harm, or you retaliate by exiling and I want you to think about that for a minute. If we've got this hope that we could be made one, if we have this hope that we could repair the cracks in the universe, the tears between us, but our response to a new tear, to a new harm, is to tear back, or worse, to tear off. We are chopping ourselves into little pieces. We will never be made whole through retaliation. We will never be made whole through punishment. We will never be made whole through the carceral state, through prisons and exile. And we long to be made whole. We were made to be made whole. So we have to repair the harm rather than cutting off and exiling. And so there were some people who came together and said, we need, to, we need to figure out a different way to talk about this. You heard me talk last week about restorative justice research. There were people saying, hey, what if instead of trying to harm back or exile, we said, let us repair this wound. Let us try to get to the place before this wound ever happened. And that is the framework of restorative justice. But there were people who said, yeah, that, doesn't, that doesn't fix it. Because why did this tear happen in the first place? What were the conditions that created this harm? We need to go beyond. We can't just restore what was because what was got us to what is. We need to transform. We need to transform systems. We need a justice that transforms all of us. And this I see as the most biblical approach to justice. Because God is not interested in restoring what was. God is not interested in recreating the status quo, the systems that created the harm. And it's misleading because we sometimes talk about reconciliation. 
And we do. We want to be reconciled. I believe that God is reconciling all things to God's self, right? And that we all come together. But when we talk about that, we can think of it in a really short-term way. That reconciliation is before what happened in my lifetime. Instead of reconciliation is what happened at the very heart of things when we were created. Because everything that's happened since then has gone a little wonky. So when we talk about reconciling or restoring, we're thinking, oh, I want to get back to this relationship as it existed before that argument. I want to get back to um, the, the ecosystem before that oil spill. I want to get back to the community before that police shooting. But that doesn't, that's not enough. It doesn't create, or it doesn't address the conditions that created the, the rift between people, the, the corporations licensed to, to destroy the environment. It doesn't address the policing system that terrorizes that community on a daily. And so when we think about our cosmic interwoven identity as the body of Christ, we have to recognize that over time, through harm, there have been vulnerabilities created in our body. That these tears, these micro tears, these gashes have created vulnerable threads. And that all of these systems of evil and injustice have ongoing consequences. They pull and tear at us just by being. Now, I don't know about you all, but I've, uh, I've been really blessed by some incredible body workers in my life. And uh, there are people who are called by, by God and spirit and their own imagination to care for bodies in a really unique way. And they get to know the human body. They are massage therapists and acupuncturists and, and physical therapists and more and more. And, and there are people who have studied how the body works. And there's something that we took a real long time to get on board with. It's called fascia. Now, fascia is something that encases all of our muscles. It's this thin little layer just sort of holding us together. And for the longest time, uh, doctors and, and body workers and people um, investigating bodies were like, oh, that's weird, and just sort of moved on. <laughs> but over time, we've realized that this, this very subtle kind of casing that's on all of our muscles is, is actually extremely important. And it holds us together. It's something that, that weaves us together in our own bodies. And that when there's harm to our body, if it's overstress or overexertion, misuse, right, imbalance, or, or something that could cause scar tissue, some sort of invasion or, or injury, that that fascia gets twisted. It gets twisted and it pulls. And that pulling, there, there was a fascinating um, lecture on it where they had somebody wearing like a like a bodysuit that sort of demonstrated all the fascia. They twisted it at the ankle, and they saw how the whole bodysuit went like that. There are threads woven through our being that are really hard for us to identify. We think of it as just the stuff of life. But these are the systems that permeate us, that permeate our culture. And anytime there's a wound, it pulls and tears and distorts things. And there is always a pain spot. And that pain spot may have nothing to do with where that wound began. But our universe is pulling and tearing and twisting 
And there are some people who don't even notice it because they're over here in the left hand and they're just doing their thing. They're like, what are you guys talking about? But there are other people who are slumped over, who are in this shoulder being pulled and pulled every day saying something is wrong. Restorative justice is what happens when we say, oh, let's, let's pop that shoulder back a little bit. Transformative justice says we got to get to that ankle. We've got to work through the whole body. None of this can be healed in isolation. The whole thing needs healing altogether. And the parts of the body that are able to ignore it are simply misinformed, and we need their help too. And so we have this this body of Christ that reflects our own bodies. We have so much learning to do in our own bodies that our healing has to be holistic. It has to be communal, and it has to be extremely thorough. We cannot just look for symptoms. We cannot just look for crisis. We have to understand what health and well-being means on the daily. Now, this is really hard to do, right? Because we are putting out crises and fires constantly. And even that work is really painful. If any of you ever have gotten body work done after an injury or something like that, that healing can hurt. Healing can hurt. And we talked about that last week a little bit, right? That moving through our pain in the act of forgiveness, processing what we've been through so that we can be prepared to heal with another person, oh, it's brutal sometimes because we have to be alive to the hurt. But we know that Jesus goes before us. We know that Jesus goes to the cross grieving with us, moving through grief and, and pain and even death into new life. Now, when Jesus moves through that healing, when Jesus moves through that grief and pain through death and into life, into res- resurrection, we find out immediately that he is unrecognizable on the other side. Unrecognizable. But it's not like Jesus' new body was like just like this extra vessel hanging out and Jesus' consciousness was like teleported. These are our fantasies, right? That we can just shed the thing we've been in. That we can abandon our body. That we can abandon our earth. And that we will magically be raptured into, uh, you know, a new, uh, a new space. Into the heavens that have always been there waiting for us. Into a new body. But that's actually not what we see Jesus doing. We don't see Jesus abandoning what is and getting something brand shiny new that's never had these experiences. In fact, in Jesus' new unrecognizable body, there are still the scars, the marks of the wounds. It is visible, it is palpable what Jesus has been through. Jesus' body has been through the things and has become something new. And this is where we get to today's scripture. God says, behold, I am doing a new thing. Don't you recognize it? There will be water in the desert. There will be water in the desert. Like, I don't, I mean, like, (laughs) the desert, there'll be water in it. I think it's so, it's so easy to hear kind of the poetry of scripture and be like, oh, that's so beautiful. I'll walk through the fire and not be scorched. But like, you're going to walk through fire, you guys. We're all just going to have like a collective circus act. We're going to be able to walk through the floods and just be like, fine, right? And what God is saying is like, you're going to come through the fire. It is fire. I'm not going to lie to you about that. You are going to go through the flood, but you will not be consumed. And what is happening is that I'm doing a new thing, and there will be water in the desert. You live in a desert. You live in a desert. There will be water. 
I am doing a new thing. And we're not disappearing the desert. We're not abandoning this earth for some distant heavens. I am creating a new heavens and a new earth, the kingdom. And it is so hard for us to imagine. It's so hard for us to imagine a transformed world. And so because we can't imagine what it is like to live in a desert with running water, we dream of restoring what was when we got by. And because we can't even get that, we settle for exiling the parts of us that we are afraid of. God has so much more for us. The transformed heaven and earth is so much more. And so today on Palm Sunday, when we remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, we have to understand that Jesus is coming in with that vision. Jesus has that vision all the time. Jesus is living in the world where he knows that there can be water in the desert, but that he's around people who are dying of thirst, right? And so Jesus says, there, I, come to me, you're so thirsty. Come to me, all who are thirsty, I have water for you. And the way that Jesus chooses to proclaim the water in the desert on Palm Sunday is to throw a, like, like a parade, a parade which is a protest because it is a juxtaposition against the empire. Because as Jesus is rolling in with his community that he's been organizing for years on a donkey with the palm fronds and the songs and the chanting, on the other side of the city, the imperial army is coming in to intimidate people because there's a holy festival going on and the empire doesn't want anyone to get too riled up about remembering that time that they were freed into liberation from slavery. So they're like, okay, well, we'll just make sure that you know that your overseers are here right now. And so they come in on their horses with their military regalia and their trumpets. And so while they are coming in as a force for intimidation, Jesus is, is prefiguring a new way. Jesus is demonstrating a new way. Jesus is, is just pouring water on himself in the desert. And he's rolling in and he's, he's exposing the old way with a new way built on singing and joy, with donkeys instead of chariots, with palm fronds, and greenery instead of military regalia. A new way where the earth itself sings the joys of God instead of people cowering in fear of the might of empire. This is a glimpse of what could be. We are called to be prophets of the new heavens and new earth. But it is so hard to imagine. And in order to be prophets of the new heaven and the new earth, we have to look honestly at the desert around us, which can be extremely painful. Now, I believe we are called to be prophets, and I believe that it is very hard for us to imagine beyond our moment. But often, the folks who have the most powerful prophetic imagination are folks who are most affected by the desert. Folks who have the most need for the water, who can imagine where it might come from and are not going to be told, no, it doesn't exist. And so I always think about, you know, when, when talking about slavery in the early church, um, which is different than chattel slavery here, but it was extremely, extremely messed up and a huge part of the economy. We unpacked a little bit of that earlier this year in the sermon series Brief, where we talked about the early church's opposition to slavery. But there are a lot of people who are wanting to write off some of the troubling passing comments in the Bible about slavery by saying, like, well, it was just, it was just the way things were. This is the way things were. No one could have imagined 
an economy at that time without slavery. No one could have imagined. But one of our colleagues uh, a couple years ago noted in a way that I will never stop thinking about. He's like, I bet the people who were enslaved actually already had imagined a lot of better ways. And we have systematically, our, our world, our torn fascia, our, our broken universe has maintained itself by silencing the prophetic imagination of folks who are most marginalized. And so when we amplify one another's voices, when we lift up marginalized experiences, it's not just to kind of like level the playing field. It's because that's where the holy imagination comes from. That's where the hope for the, for the waters comes from, the people who are most thirsty, the people who can see it. And so we need to amplify, we need to seek out those voices that have been silenced by the systems that want us to believe the status quo is all there is. Now in my life, some of the most powerful modern prophets speaking today are abolitionists. I've got a couple of different books here by people who have really influenced me, people who I'm still learning from on the daily. Adrienne Marie Brown, Miriam Kaba, and Derricka Purnell are all black women who have encountered violence and oppression and can imagine a better way. Say, hey, the way that things are is insufficient and I'm not gonna settle for it and there's more. And I wanna read to you, it's, this is a, uh, this is from the beginning of Becoming Abolitionists, Police, Protests, and the Pursuit of Freedom by Derricka Purnell. She writes, In 2020, Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin pinned George Floyd to the concrete as he hollered that he could not breathe. Floyd screamed. He screamed for his mother. He screamed for his breath for his life, until he died nine minutes later. Calls for justice quickly ensued. I often wonder, what if the cop who killed George Floyd had kneeled on Floyd's neck for eight minutes and 46 seconds instead of nine minutes? Floyd would have lived to be arrested, prosecuted, and imprisoned for allegedly attempting to use a counterfeit $20 bill. Is that justice? I did not think so. Too often, the public calls for justice when black people are killed by the police and ignore the daily injustice if the victims would have lived. I was surprised what followed next. Unlike the Black Lives Matter calls six years prior, protesters were shouting, defund the police. Abolition was entering into the mainstream. Initially, the notion of police abolition repulsed me. The idea seemed like it was created by white activists who did not know the violence that I knew, that I have felt. At the time, I considered abolition to be pejoratively utopic. I had seen too much sexual violence and buried too many friends to consider getting rid of the police in St. Louis, let alone the nation. I still lose people to violence. Sapphire, John, Greg, Brianna, Monty, Corey, Christopher, Christopher, 
Jarrell. Sometimes I reread our text messages to laugh again and cry. But over time, I came to realize that in reality, the police were a placebo. Calling them felt like something, as the legal scholar Michelle Alexander explains. And something feels like everything when your other option is nothing. Police couldn't do what we really needed. They could not heal relationships or provide jobs. They did not interrupt violence, they escalated it. We were usually afraid when we called. When the cops arrived, I was silenced, threatened with detention, or removed from my home. Today, more than 15 years later, St. Louis has more police per capita than most cities in the US. My old neighborhood still lacks quality food, employment, schools, healthcare, and air, all of which increases the risk of violence and our reliance on police. Instead of improving the quality of the neighborhood, St. Louis, which has the highest rate of killings by police among the largest cities in the US, spends more money on police. Yet I feared letting go. I thought we needed them. She spends more of this book explaining why we don't. And one of the things that, that she talks about that I think is really powerful is the idea that coming to terms with the reality that we live in means exposing that what we have is, is a fantasy. The idea that the police keep the peace, that they protect us, and that therefore without prisons and police there would be violence and injustice, this is a fantasy. Because there is injustice and violence, including a great deal perpetrated by police and prisons. So they not only fail to protect us, but they cause the thing that they are meant to stop. The question comes up in her book, well, what will we do with the murderers? And she immediately asks, which ones? And now, we're not even just talking about policing, right? Corporate murder is enormous in this world. The, the people who die for profit, it is constant. The people who die for war and imperialism is constant. What are we doing with the murderers? Nothing. We are doing nothing with the murderers. And so, a prophetic imagination, an abolitionist imagination, a biblical imagination says we need to imagine water in this desert. We need to imagine water in this desert. Because we're out here and we are dying of thirst. Now, when I was a community organizer, we talked about, a lot about this tension between living in the world as it is and the world as it ought to be. And I, I, this is such a strong uh, lesson in my life that it is tattooed onto my body. These two rings, one represents the world as it is, one as the world as it ought to be. And I am called to live in the tension in the middle, touching both. And it is very difficult because the world as it is, living in the world as it is, is depressing. Living in the world as it is, is troubling. Living in the world as it is, is about being practical about saying, what can we do? How do we survive? 
And living in the world as it is can keep you trapped because it says, I'm living in this desert as it is. Now, we are also then called to live in the world as it could be. We are called never to lose sight of the image of the water in the desert. We are called to be alive to the possibilities of what God is doing. We are supposed to be just as connected to the kingdom that is promised as the realities of our pain. Jesus says the kingdom is at hand. The kingdom is in you. We are at once in the kingdom and in the present. We are at once alive to what could be and alive to what is. Now the other advantage of being in the world as it is and the world as it ought to be is that when you hold that hope for what is coming, when you have the hope for what could be, the world as it is is not only depressing because you can ground yourself. The desert still has ground and you can feel it beneath your feet. The desert still has air and you can fill it, fill up your lungs. The desert has your community in it. And so when we are grounded and present and alive to the moment that is, we can do so because we see what God has in store for us. And we can be critical of what is, and we can be hopeful of what is to come. We can imagine what is eternal. And so we are called to live in that tension between what is and what could be. But I'm going to say it again, being alive to what is is hard. It is hurtful. It is depressing. This is why we have fantasies. This is why we think that the things that cannot save us, we like to pretend can save us anyway. And it's not just the cops, right? Every self-delusion we have, every collective delusion we have about what can really save us, whether that's money or a relationship or status or a change of venue, all of those things are fantasies we live in because it is so hard to look at the desert and feel our thirst. And this is why before he enters Jerusalem, Jesus looks at Jerusalem and weeps. He looks at Jerusalem and he weeps. And he says, the time will come when your enemies will build fortifications around you, will encircle you, will attack you from all sides. They will crush you completely and you and the people within you they won't leave one stone on top of another within you. Now, I don't think this is like a threat from Jesus. I think this is, this is an observation. This is a confession. This is Jesus not being afraid to look directly at that hurt and weep and say, we are dying of thirst. The violence that we inflict upon each other and ourselves because we can't discern the way. There are some of us who have enough privilege that it makes it easier to pretend. And there are others who can't pretend because it is too real in every moment. And so, this is why the biblical call is to say we need to discern truth 
And we need to know that the truth comes from the people who are not deluding themselves, the people who cannot delude themselves, the people who see what is because they experience the harm firsthand. And that is why the most marginalized are the most important. That is why the voices of those most affected by harm are the voices of prophetic truth. That is why everyone else who is able to pretend must lay down their privilege, their identity, their supremacy, alignment, so that we can see the desert for what it is and stop pretending. Transformative justice begins with facing what is. It begins with weeping. Now, transformative justice advocates urge us to think beyond replacing the police. They say that the state's commitment to punitive justice rules the state out as any potential collaborator. Some uh, transformative justice advocates even say, like, this isn't compatible with schools, much less policing. And so it can feel overwhelming. We say every structure that is has been built on desert logic. Every structure that is has been built on slave labor. Every structure that is has been built on violence, especially towards the most vulnerable. We cannot build the kingdom. We cannot find the water on the backs of the violence against black and brown bodies. We cannot. We cannot. And so we get hopeless. We say, well, then let's settle for exiling someone over this. Let's dream about maybe what it was like before this one harm happened. We get desperate. But Derricka Purnell urges us, urges us to ground ourselves and imagine. She talks about her own struggle imagining this utopic idea. And she said, just because I did not know an answer didn't mean that one did not exist. And it brings me right back to Jesus weeping over Jerusalem because what he says as he weeps, if only you knew, if only you knew, on this of all days, the things that lead to peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus knows the things that lead to peace. Jesus promises the things that lead to peace. There is a path towards the kingdom. But we need to lay down all of our strategies of getting by in the desert. We need to hope. We need to imagine that there is a better way. And we need to face it. And so this is why transformative justice, you know, we think like this should be, this should be the big woo, you know, like why is transformative justice not on Easter Sunday? It's not the resurrection. It's because transformative justice actually begins with the weeping. It begins with the weeping. And once we can actually come together and say, we have not known the ways of peace, then we can listen to the imagination of those who have been dreaming, who have suffered and said, I know a better way. I know a better way must exist. And so we hold space and protection and holy alignment with one another to say, hey, let us dream. Let us follow Jesus' promise of peace. Let's imagine a world not just without police, but where police are not needed. Let us imagine a world that we could create that, that the harm that is caused now on a daily basis is not possible. 
And this is where we get the title of Miriam Kaba's excellent book, We Do This Till We Free Us. Because she shares in this, in this understanding that we don't actually know what abolition is. That we don't have the imagination yet. That we do not, as Jesus said, know the things that lead to peace. But we will find them by doing them. We do this till we free us. We follow Jesus into the unknown. We follow Jesus into freedom. And along the way, we are going to come into contact with a lot of imperial force. We are going to come into contact with the state and violence and oppression. We may come into contact with death, but we trust that the other side is a resurrection that is beyond our own understanding. We trust that the ways of peace lead to the kingdom. We trust that the ways of peace will roll down waters like justice, justice and waters in the desert. The kingdom is real. The kingdom is ours. And we find the kingdom by building it. Will you pray with me? Good and holy God, it is hard to be honest with ourselves about how thirsty we are. God, it is hard to hold space when some are thirstier than others, when some can pretend. God, convict our hearts to see what is around us, but convict us also to see what can be, what you are building, the water that is coming. God, teach us the ways of peace. Teach us to follow you into a direct clash with the empire and the powers of evil so that we may find resurrection on the other side. And God, give us the courage, the hope, the strength to lean on one another to do so. God, you are good and your promises are true. May we live confronting the world as it is, but fueled by the world as it will be. Amen.